Hebrews chapter 4. Might as well keep it marked until we finish this series. But Hebrews chapter 4, starting to read at verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, and we thank the Lord for that, as well as unto them. You know, the only thing that separates us and them in this verse is faith in the word of God. No race, no culture, no education, no social status, none of that, only faith. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. We are continuing this morning our series on being mixed with faith. Amen. In our last lesson, we considered how the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he addressed some of the division that was taking place in that church and the confusion that was being caused by that division. Paul went on to say that they needed to be separate from the world. They needed to not be mixed up with things that were of the flesh. And he underlined that there is no compatibility between light and darkness or righteousness and unrighteousness. And as a part of our lesson, we discussed, we considered the impact of mainstream media on the world. We talked about news and current affairs media. We also talked about entertainment and how... It has an incredible impact on the thinking of our world and how it is a very powerful vehicle that causes people to gradually shift from being shocked by certain behavior to accepting that behavior to normalizing that behavior and finally to promoting that behavior. And as a part of that lesson, we went through a list of questions that are healthy for Christians to ask themselves when they're making choices about their entertainment and uh, some of you have asked me for that list I'm still happy to provide it should you want it the easiest way is to send me an email that way it will not be forgotten but if you weren't here I would encourage you to listen to that lesson on the podcast amen and so as we again consider the benefits or profit that we receive from mixing our faith with the word of God today I want to go right back to the beginning Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 Scripture says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. For the period of the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, however long that was in, in what we consider time, we're not exactly sure. There are certainly some strong opinions around. But for however long those first two chapters were, Adam and Eve were sinless, created in the image of God. That image was not so much about their physical appearance, although I do think there is a certain amount where God in his eternal quality could look ahead in time and consider his own incarnation, his own declaring in flesh thousands of years later. But the image was really more about their hearts, their souls, their minds their intellectual capabilities, their emotional qualities, and even the morality that was inbuilt into their sinless nature. God, the Bible says, John chapter 4, is a spirit. 
and it is his unique spiritual qualities that we were particularly created to reflect, particularly created to be the image of. Now, I know there's a connection, first Adam, second Adam, that's not what this lesson is about, but even now, as born again or redeemed images, we see this idea of reflection communicated to us in the scripture. In the book of James chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man that beholds his natural face in a glass or in a mirror. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Again, the reflection that we are encouraged to observe from the word of God in James's epistle is not about whether our hair is neat or messy. I don't think James particularly cared about that. But rather it's about the condition of our hearts and of our minds. And it is the heard word, if I can put it that way, the heard word or the word mixed with faith that continues to produce a restoration of the image that we were originally designed to be. Now, we know from the Word of God, and I don't want to get off track this morning, that we grow. We are born again. We begin a new life. That life requires growth. It requires understanding. It requires maturity. And so it is an ongoing process of sanctification and of of understanding and maturity in our relationship with God. And so that image is continually being restored. The speed of that restoration is connected to both the will of God and our willingness to submit to that will. But it is an ongoing thing. So we, in this life, will never see the ultimate completion of the restoration of that image. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 says that when the Lord returns in that moment, when the the trumpet sounds and the the speed of the twinkling of an eye, there's going to be a, a change from corruptible to incorruptible. And from mortal to immortal, there's going to be a final transition where that image will finally be restored, I believe, to its original design. Amen. And as we understand, the the introduction of sin in the third chapter of Genesis began a corrupting of that image. And over time, that has seen the devil work tirelessly, he doesn't get tired much, to twist to pervert and do his best to erase that image. That's why John 10 and 10 says the thief doesn't come just, but he comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. But I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And it's very important and very sobering for us to realize this morning that the corruption of the image creature that God created in the beginning has on at least two occasions historically in the word of God, reached a tipping point where judgment was dispatched, where God said, enough, enough is enough. We know that in Genesis chapter 6, the, the account of Noah and the ark, it was a global judgment. It was wholesale. It was complete. And we also know that a little later in the book of Genesis that upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a little more localized, God reached a tipping point and he said the wickedness has reached that point where judgment needs to be dispatched. Very uh, unpalatable 
in a modern culture that God would decide that he has the arbitrary authority to dispense judgment, but that's who he is. He is a holy and a righteous God. Amen. And it is not a coincidence that, biblically speaking, the return of the Lord is also going to be at a time when the world is behaving as it did back then. The Bible says that as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the time of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, when there is gross wickedness, vile immorality, combined together with a complete apathy towards the existence of God. And right now, if you look around you, and you have any awareness of the world in which we live, our world is taking the corrupting and the twisting of the image creature right to the very brink of that same tipping point. And it will come. It will reach a point where the Lord says we have reached the tipping point and the, the, the season, if you like, the age of grace and mercy will come to an end and God will be the judge again. The judgment of God will come again and it will be final. It will be final. And, you know, it's, it's I guess where we're going today in this morning's lesson, the misuse and the abuse of human sexuality is very clearly recorded in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and it is at the very least implied in Genesis chapter 6 in Noah's day. It's connected to the, dis- the dispatching of God's judgment. And it, it's an important question to ask is that why is human sexuality so significant when it comes to sin? Why is it a, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say key subject, but a very serious topic when it comes to sin. And before I go any further, I want to say from the outset, we want to handle this this morning as wisely and as respectfully as we can. We're not out to attack anybody, but we want to understand because it is so important in this world that our understanding is based upon the Word of God. Amen. So, Scripture teaches us that fornication, now, that word is sometimes understood to mean sexual relationships outside of a marriage relationship, which it does include. But I think across the board in Scripture, it is broader than that. It basically includes any kind of immorality, any kind of sexual immorality, sorry. Scripture, the Bible tells us, fornication is destructive against ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6 and 18 says, flee fornication. That's some really good advice. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. It's, a, it's an action, it's a demonstration that to a certain degree has a certain amount of separation. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body, the Bible says. Now, whatever our understanding of that verse is, and there's a variety of opinions about exactly what that is saying, what it does let us know is that there are particular consequences for sexual sin that harm us as individuals, that make it different from other sin. Now, all sin is wrong. There's no, you know, get away with sin. There's no white lies, whatever. There's, there's none of this, you know, the, the idea of you have to sin a little bit every day. That's a lie from the devil. All sin is sin. But as we taught in one of our recent lessons, some sins have more consequences in the present. All have eternal consequences. Some have more consequences in the present. And the Apostle Paul 
is writing and let us know here that there are particular consequences that we bring upon ourselves individually when we're involved in sexual sin. So that's one of the first reasons it's significant scripturally. The second one is that the family unit is God's building block and classroom for so much of life. And so when that is destroyed, it is devastating. The marriage union is a picture of God's relationship with his people in both the Old and the New Testament. So to corrupt and destroy the God-given design and pattern for sexuality within a marriage devastates families, which in turn devastates children, which produces a society void of a template for life and void of God-consciousness. And when we understand this, we see the very importance of the creation statement, male and female created he them. That We, we read that sometimes and we, we, we brush over it, but this is not simply an ethical issue. It's not just a cultural issue. Nor is it something that Christians believe that shouldn't affect those outside of faith. But the statement, male and female created he them, is as fundamental as let there be light. It's in the same passage of scripture. It's just as fundamental. Now, we can choose, like they do in Cooperpedia, to live underground and to avoid acknowledging the sun's existence. But it does not, for even a second, diminish its brightness. It doesn't make it irrelevant or subject to the opinions of mankind. It simply is, and it shines. And we might not like the weather, but the weather is what it is. And if we want to pretend the sun doesn't exist and live in a hole under the ground, we can do that, but the sun hasn't gone away. We're just in denial. It's there and it shines. And in exactly the same way, to declare that male and female are not, sorry, are not established biological facts, when people make those statements, it doesn't change the truth that they were instituted that way from creation. Any more than ignoring the sun is foolish. To ignore that God said, I made them male and female is just as foolish. And in our last lesson, we discussed entertainment. And we considered how entertainment as we know it is only a relatively recent phenomenon and how that within the last hundred years or possibly even less than that, so around about 5% of Christian history, we've, we've had the issues of entertainment that have just snowballed to what they are today. But within that same time frame, or possibly even less, we have also seen in our cultures, in our culture here and in much of the Western world, an incredible moral decay. Now, in case you think uh, it's just a naive, ignorant Christian, I am not suggesting for a moment that immorality is new. No, not for a second. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and even bestiality are addressed in the scriptures in some of its earliest pages, in some of the earliest parts of the Word of God. The idea of a moral sin is as old as mankind. So this is not a new thing. But what has changed in the last 100 years, or realistically less than that, in a Western world, I'm not saying 
I'm not painting with too broad a brush, but at least in a Western world, is that these behaviours have become accepted, normalised, and finally promoted. Homosexuality, for example, has gone from, in the last 50 years, being illegal, to being decriminalised, to being tolerated, to being accepted, to being normalised, and to being celebrated. Interestingly, it parallels the same progression in entertainment. That's worth thinking about when you think about your entertainment choices. The Bible is very clear when it comes to human sexuality. But when we talk about that drift, it's important we teach these things because there are churches today that claim to be churches that are accepting behaviours, immoral behaviours, as okay in people of faith that society said was illegal less than 50 years ago. That's very sobering. That's very, very sobering. But the Bible is very clear when it comes to human sexuality. The Bible lets us know that it is created by God. It is not created by the devil. It is not a wicked thing. It is created by God to serve a unique purpose within a marriage relationship between a man and a woman who are committed to each other for life. Full stop. That's its creation purpose. It is designed so that within only that relationship, it serves as both the capacity for procreation and the intimate union of a husband and wife that distinguishes that from all other human relationships. That's its design. It is God-designed, God-ordained. And when it occurs within its designed purpose that God gave it to us for, it is positive and it is powerful. Outside of that designed purpose, outside of those parameters, it is also powerful, but it is destructive. It is powerfully destructive. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says, Marriage is honourable in all, and the bed undefiled. In other words, sexual relationships within a marriage, God honours that. It's not defiled. It's a beautiful thing. It's holy. It's righteous. But whoremongers... That's a broad word meaning people involved in immoral behavior. And adulterers, God will judge. We talked about God's judgment a little earlier. The Old Testament law gives us some pretty clear insight into how God feels about sexual activity outside of marriage. Any variety. In fact, when you look at the Old Testament law, any of those behaviors were punishable by death. That was... That was not therapy, death. That was the decision from God. Those behaviors were punishable by death. And now you and I are in the New Testament church and so our relationship with the book of Leviticus is not the same as it was for Moses. But the New Testament addresses these issues strongly as well. Uh, If you read, take the time to read Acts chapter 15 you'll find that the elders of the church have all come together. They're having uh, what church historians call the first church council. Uh, It was was really a leadership meeting more than anything else. They came together to discuss a dispute, to resolve a dispute over how the law of Moses 
should or shouldn't be applied to the new Gentile non-Jew believers in the church because there were some were saying well they need to do this and others were saying no they don't and so they came together and said let's let's sort this out and when that discussion was finished and the decision was made this is what was said in Acts chapter 15 and verse 20 but that we write unto them that's the Gentiles the non-Jewish believers that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood now there's a there's a lot of things we get into unpacking all of those, but in line with our lesson this morning, fornication or sexual sin of all kind was wrong in the sight of God in the Old Testament. It was wrong in the sight of God in the New Testament. And it's still wrong in 2023 in the sight of God. Amen. Teaching and warning about fornication appears directly and indirectly in almost every single book in the New Testament. Most of the epistles address it directly. If it's not addressed directly in the others, it is mentioned indirectly in some capacity. It is there. It is instruction was given to all of the churches. It matters to God. It matters to God. And, and be patient with me till the end in case you think I'm being a hardliner this morning. God's the hardliner on this subject. So if you have an issue with it, take it up with him. But one of the ideas that gets voiced from time to time regarding Christians' views of homosexuality is that Jesus didn't teach against it. Now, the Apostle Paul certainly did, but Jesus didn't teach against it. And so the idea is that because they're trying to be palatable to society that Paul was maybe a little bit, you know, obsessed with the idea and had a problem. Uh, But because Jesus didn't actually teach it, it's not really necessary to worry about. The first problem with this view is that it suggests that the letters in red in your Bible are more important than the words in black. Uh, unfortunately, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, not just the red letters, the black letters as well. Uh, in fact, my pastor at one stage wasn't in favor of red-letter Bibles because he didn't like that separation because it's all the Word of God. But secondly, and this is possibly the key to responding to that, is that the ministry of Jesus was primarily focused in a Jewish context. He ministered primarily to the Jews. Yes, in John chapter 4, he did go to Samaria. He did talk to the woman at the well. He stayed in Samaria for a little while. He ministered to those people. On a few other occasions, he, he delivered the Canaanite woman's daughter from demon possession. The centurion came to him and he healed the centurion's servant because the centurion had great faith. But across the board, the ministry of Jesus was primarily to the people of Israel. Israel was under the law of Moses. Israel as a nation had a very clear understanding about how God felt about the subject. So Jesus didn't need to teach it. He also didn't teach about fornication, except when he was, he referenced it when he was teaching about divorce. Other than that, he didn't really teach about fornication, but it would be bold to suggest that Jesus didn't think that mattered either. They understood that the predominant congregations that he ministered to were descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. They were people who lived under the law and even though their hearts may have been hard and spiritually they were a backslidden nation, they knew the law of Moses. They knew what God thought about those things. Amen. And in Romans chapter 1, we see a process that gives us a broad overview of the downward spiral of what happens to humanity when it opposes and rejects God. 
Now Paul spends, for the sake of time, he spends the first half of the chapter thereabouts greeting the church in Rome, expressing his desire to visit them, declaring that he is not ashamed of the gospel and telling us that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And then his tone shifts. Theologians call, you know, the beginning and the end of epistles benedictions. We would say greetings and farewells. Doesn't mean they're they're not important. There's a lot in those that we can still learn from. But at around about the halfway point of Romans chapter 1, Paul's tone begins to shift and he begins a brief but devastating account of the responsibility of sorry, of the response rather to God in human history. So let's pick it up in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So this first passage, this first chunk tells us that God gives man the opportunity to know him, in the very least through the wonder and power of creation. Then it moves on and it says, because that, when they knew God, so that when they had some sort of knowledge of God, they glorified him not as God, Neither were thankful, but became vain or empty in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, that's not a medical condition that you'll find at your doctor. I don't know if anybody's ever been diagnosed with a darkened heart. But spiritually, it's an issue. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And that's the world in which we live. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. So man has rejected God. He has sought an alternative option to direct his worship because there is something innate in mankind that needs to worship. And idolatry is the outcome. They create images made with their own hands that look like other men or birds or animals. And then in verse 24 it says, Wherefore, or because of this, God also gave them up to uncleanness, that's talking about immoral behavior, through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We see this expression more than once in this chapter. It says that God gave them up to something. This means, it doesn't mean that he... he, made them do certain things but what it means is that he allowed the consequences of their choices and their actions to run their course that's what it means and so when his morality was removed by man's rejection of him perversion quickly followed verse 26 for this cause god gave them up to vile affections for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. And this passage is a scripture where we're glad the kids are upstairs. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, 
and receiving in themselves the recompense or the consequences of the error which was meet or which was appropriate. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And the King James uses some words which, for our understanding, don't pack enough punch, are not convenient. There's a whole lot more power in that word than the way we use it. But a reprobate mind is a mind that has lost value and sound judgment and has no moral reference points. When you look at the the original Greek behind that, that word, it includes within its meanings the idea of a currency that has no value. It's got no value left. Verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. We'll just let that one hang there for a moment for the young people. Verse 31, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Even with the knowledge of how God feels about such things and an awareness that there are consequences, they don't only continue to behave that way, but they actually celebrate those who excel in wickedness. Now, moral and sexual depravity has invaded cultures and societies and even empires throughout history And it's often as they have crumbled and fallen apart. In a modern Western context, much of our legal system and our moral code, at least in the past, has been based upon Christian values. Now, I am not suggesting for a moment that nations were or are necessarily godly. Uh, There's sinners on every continent, in every state, in every town. But when we have a Judeo-Christian foundation it has proven beneficial to societies that are built upon that. But right now, in 2023, it is our turn to see the consequences of Romans chapter 1 playing out before our eyes. We are seeing the unravelling of many of these things. All manner of fornication is celebrated and the idea of morality is being abandoned. And the corruption of the creation image has reached a point where it is no longer anymore just about what we do with our bodies, but it's even shifted to questioning the very identity of our bodies. That's where we're at. The transgender movement is the current chapter of the downward spiral produced by the rejection of God. You see, what we are observing in real time, that's how terrifying this is, we're observing in real time the same process that we have seen with every previous step. We are shocked by certain behavior. We begin to accept certain behavior. We normalize that behavior. And finally, we promote that behavior. That's what we're seeing. Now, I'm not an expert, and I'm not even going to pretend to be one or try to be one. But gender dysphoria, as a simple definition, and I know there are academics in the room, so I tremble with fear, but it refers to psychological distress 
that results from an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity. Or to put even a little bit more simply, an incongruence or an incompatibility between mind and body. It's possibly a simple way. I know this. Again, I'm staying on the surface level. And what we have to understand is it is not a new thing. It's not a new thing. We think it's a, a new thing, but it isn't. But until fairly recently, it was considered to be a diagnosable mental illness, which means that in recognizing that incongruence, that incompatibility, it was determined that the source of the problem was psychological, not physical. It was psychological. And in, this is a very long title, but in the Manual of International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, which is a tongue twister, which I believe is overseen by the World Health Organization, we know as WHO, it has been relocated from the chapter on mental disorders to a new chapter on conditions relating to sexual health because it has been recognized as an out-of-date diagnosis and also they want to remove the stigma that is attached. Or they don't want people to feel bad about it, in other words. This is something very similar to the way that what used to be called sexually transmitted diseases are now called sexually transmitted illnesses or infections because that's less of a stigma. It's less of a, it doesn't have as much of an unpleasant connotation. Interestingly, Homosexuality was also included as a mental disorder in both the World Health Organization's manual and the DSM, which is the manual that the American Psychiatric Association uses until before that. So there's this gradual shifting of definitions about the behaviours. One of the, in my opinion, and that's all it is, is my opinion, I think one of the, the reasons for that is their failure to accurately address and help people with those issues using psychological methods. Amen. So... It is very significant that prior to societal pressure, these behaviours were considered a disorder of the mind. A disorder of the mind. Also that in the days of Noah, the Bible says that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Romans speaks of how humanity has been given over to a reprobate mind. Amen. So, the Bible is very clear. The Bible is emphatic that he created them male and female. It's also very emphatic about where sexuality belongs and where it does not in terms of sexual interaction and relationships. So how do we, as believers, respond? There are some people who profess to be Christians whose approach to people with sexual Immorality is horrendous. It is judgmental. It is vicious. I would consider it is a sin of equal quality. I'll say that about it. How do we interact with our world and with people who participate in sinful behavior? We must always remember that such were some of us. Such were some of us. In this room this morning, there are former fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals. And by the grace of God, there will also be former transgender people as well, if there aren't already. 
We don't scan people. There's no way to do a test on that. We were all died for. We can all be washed, filled, and saved. Amen. And we have to always operate from that as our starting point. That's our baseline. And as believers, there is a balance, there is a tension that exists between demonstrating compassion, love, and respect, and yet not endorsing behavior. And that's where we have to do our very best to position ourselves. The argument that is made of being born a particular way is complex in that we're all born into sin, that we all have tendencies and behaviors that are influenced both by nature and nurture or both by genetics and environment. Many personality traits and the flaws associated with personality traits can be inherited. It doesn't excuse them, but they are inherited. You know, we, we, we sometimes have said in the past that when we are considering that children are influenced very easily, that they are a blank slate. And that is true to a point in that they are yet to experience a lot of influence, but they are not a completely blank slate. We inherit so much genetically from our parents, our personalities and, and other things. And even because humanity is sinful, we can even inherit some of their flaws and weaknesses and tendencies. But God came to save us all from those things. So while we understand those things, we don't excuse those things. Understanding is helpful. Getting a get-out-of-jail-free card is not biblical. Amen. So, many, as I said, many personality traits and the flaws associated with personality traits can be inherited and they can be exacerbated by environment and experience. There are so many factors. I, I'm always cautious about flippant one-size-fits-all answers because humanity is complicated. You all by yourself are complicated, regardless of the species as a whole. We're all complicated. Amen. And the twisting of human sexuality is impacted by so many factors, including but not limited to family structures, including broken homes. Broken homes can produce all kinds of problems. And if you're a single parent here today, we salute you for your effort. We're not, we're not being judgmental. We're not casting aspersions. There's a whole lot of background in all of our lives that find us here this morning. And if you are doing your very best, we salute you and we stand with you. Amen. But family structures can affect that area. Exposure to pornography at a young age is also a big factor. Abuse of its varied kinds is a factor. The influence of others who have modelled and demonstrated certain behaviours is a factor. The confusion that is produced and promoted by society and media is a factor. There is something called a social contagion factor where because something becomes popular in society, people get on the bandwagon and they decide, well, I think I might have that problem too. And, and, and so there, while there is a certain element that is a genuine issue that needs to be helped, there are some that go, hey, well, I, I am adamant that if you took away the internet, I'm not saying we should, but if you took away the internet, the transgender movement would be so much smaller than it is because of the social contagion factor. And again, that's not being judgmental. That's just an observation of fact. 
the confusion that is produced by society and media. Also, another factor can be being misguided during developmental years and adolescence. It is not uncommon for young people growing up in a mixed-up world to experience some questions about their identity during adolescence, but statistics reveal that most of it works itself out with time. Now, that's some examples. That's not all. I'm not saying that everything comes from that. Again, that's too simplistic. As the church, we must always offer hope. We must always offer hope. But that hope is found in Jesus. It's not found in endorsing a behavior or a lifestyle. Confusion surrounding gender identity, contrary to what the experts are telling us, is a mental disorder. It is an illness. And sadly, this is reflected in many of the other issues that are presented with these conditions. People who experience, who have a genuine psychological disorder in this area often have so many other issues going on in their lives, in their emotions and in their intellect. Because what we are starting to see in our society is that the efforts that the geniuses in our world, and I say that to be deliberately unkind, are demonstrating is not working. In fact, it is compounding problems. It is making difficult situations worse. And now there is something of a pushback in our society, and I pray that they push back hard before too many young lives are destroyed beyond repair. Amen. And so we should respect and care for these individuals in the same way we would for any person with a serious illness. We should have concern for their well-being. We should not deny their illness. We should support them in whatever treatment is being sought after. And we should definitely not identify them by their illness. If somebody you know has a terminal disease, that disease is not their identity. That's their illness. And you care for that person and you are concerned about their illness, but the two are not one and the same. And it's just the same with forms of mental illness, whether it's gender dysphoria or something else, that is not their identity. That is their illness or their problem. Amen. It's important that we understand that. Jesus is still the healer. He's still the deliverer. Amen. And as believers, we have to have a solid, mixed with faith understanding of what the Bible says about these things. We must guard our hearts and our minds against the continuous slide drift that is happening around about us. We must recognize that our position will not be popular. And we must ask God for wisdom as we deal with people, as we witness to people, as we endeavor to disciple people. You know, let's be honest. Some of those things terrify us. How do I share the gospel? God is more than able. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And he will help us just like he always has. Do not assume that somebody who is a practicing homosexual or is suffering from gender dysphoria has an evil spirit. That's a mistake. Do I believe that there can be spiritual components? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
but immorality and fornication are works of the flesh. And so while we must be spiritually sensitive and there are places where people will need to be delivered from certain things to automatically assume that somebody has an evil spirit that's involved in those lifestyles creates more problems than it fixes. We need to have wisdom when it comes to those things. We've got to recognize we won't be popular. It doesn't matter how wise we are, the world's not going to like our position. But in his image created he them, male and female. That's how he made us. But we must offer hope and reach for all people, regardless of their sin. You know, it wasn't that long ago we used to think, well, what are we going to do? We're reaching for people in same-sex relationships. That's yesterday's news now. (laughs) Now we've got new challenges, but God is able. If he hasn't come back, then that means the gospel can still do its work. If the trumpet hasn't sounded, then he, it's no harder for him to save a person with gender dysphoria than an alcoholic. It, it's, it's, God doesn't have to train more to reach a homosexual than he does to save a liar or a thief. He can reach any of them. But we are his hands and feet and we need to understand our platform our foundation, but we must have compassion. If you have children that are of school age, you need to be very in tune with the way they think about these things. You need to establish these truths in their life because society will fill that vacuum if you don't. And you must teach them to care about everybody, but they must know what the Word of God says. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. I know this is not a popular subject in our world, but we are called to be a light in a dark place. And we need to know the source of that light. When we stand at the foot of the cross, we all stand in need of salvation. When we come to him and we hear the gospel of how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life, we were all scheduled to perish. Rich, poor, black, white, educated, uneducated, heterosexual, homosexual, transgender, whatever level of confusion or sin, the gospel is for all of us. But we must know what the word of God says to begin with. We have to teach our families not to judge, to understand, to love and to have compassion. 